How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. I was shot twice in the Tribune. I read where you were shot five times in the tabloids. It's not true. He didn't come anywhere near my tabloids. What else is sad? The Great Depression. Yes. Good segue, Mike. Thank you. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and tonight, mystery. But not like the Bermuda Triangle kind of mystery that doesn't have a true end, or depending on how you look at it, a concrete answer, but everyone made a mystery out of it. I'm, I'm talking like someone got shot in a dark alley, and we got to figure out who did it kind of mystery. That type of mystery. Anyways, the Bop crew is here tonight for a Bop in a movie about one of my favorite detective films, The Thin Man. I'm your host, Cody. Joining me today are my co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. It makes me sad to think that Asta's dead. Yeah, a bunch of times over. I don't know how long that species of dogs... Is species the right term? Breed? How long that breed of dog lives, but I'm sure it's not like 70 years. And my other co-host, Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. Do you have a morbid fact for us about dog death? No, but I do have it on good authority that one-take Woody is what they called you in college. I wish be cool to have a nickname see i'm sad the director wasn't called one take dyke <laughs> i know it's such like god oh, damn it old timey people you you're, you're, just, just you're in the wrong era uh, well it's, it is possible they didn't want to confuse him with the uh lesbian pulp novel one take dyke so jamie can we call you that Satan from now on or is, or is that too offensive <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i don't know the politics of me so I don't want to say anything uh, presumptuous we, that's going if, to get myself canceled by myself. Jamie, I think you're free to cancel Mike whenever you want now. Like, you just have a free card to be like, Mike, sorry, you were an asshole that one time, so you're all... I, I am constantly on the verge of being canceled, let's face it. Oh, I, I have fucking cancel cards on all of you in a little Rolodex. See, I get mad. I'm They're called receipts. Uber, but petty bullshit. I'll, I'll get canceled. That's that's a thing that'll happen. But it won't be because I did something really offensively stupid. Uh, it'll be because there's no interest in me as a person. They'll just be like, we canceled you to make room for better people. <laughs> you were canceled for being boring. 
Right, like the Nelson ratings were abysmal, and you were in a primetime slot. There is no reason for you to be on, even at like one a.m. We're gonna put slap chop ads over over you as a person. Your grave will now be like a a slap chop ad. It's the only way to make profit off of this venture. Wasn't that the plot of that Logan Paul YouTube movie? I forgot about the slap chop. (laughs) This hasn't. Okay, I'm gonna actually steer away from it before we go down a fucking slap chop black hole, Uh, folks. We're going to be watching the movie in just a minute, so if you have a copy of The Thin Man available through the WB Archive Blu-ray release program, you should queue that up. In the meantime, I'm going to be describing the official drink of the night, so go fumble through your DVD collection while I fumble through getting drunk. I also say it's on HBO Max as well. Oh, nice. Legit. I, mean, I, be- I believe all of the uh, Thin Man movies are on HBO Max, if I'm not mistaken, which is a really pleasant surprise when I was checking out the service last week. Wow, that's super cool. Fuck, yeah, am I, uh, to, I don't want HBO Max. Am I going to have to get it? <laughs> yeah, say, say what you will news. about HBO. It's on Roku now. Is it? Wow. Yep. Nice. Just announced earlier. I feel earlier. like you guys are lying me about a bunch of things. I feel like you just made up like 10 things and threw them at me to see what I believe. Maybe, maybe you don't know. You'll never know. I, I have the internet, Mike. Once we're done podcasting, I'll just type it into the internet. You wouldn't look up Play-Doh fetishist earlier, so you're not going to look that up. Now continue with your drink. That's because I'm a coward, and I don't want to look up Play-Doh vaginas. Huh. Nobody said anything about Play-Doh vaginas, Cody. You just threw that in there yourself. Uh, so the drink of the night is the French 75. What you're going to need, folks, at home, no Play-Doh at all. You're going to need an ounce and a half of dry gin. You're going to need a half ounce of St. Germain elderflower liquor. Now, a lot of traditional recipes for this, read all <laughs> recipes for this, would say you don't use any St. Germain. Uh, that's a twist other people like to do to fancy the drink up a little. A lot of them use simple syrup instead to give it a sugary sweetness. Nah, fuck that. St. Germain's. You're also going to need a half ounce of lemon juice, three to four ounces of champagne, depending on how big your glass is and how much champagne you like. Uh, and if you want to garnish this, get yourself uh, a lemon peel and then twist it up for garnish. So this is a very easy drink to make, unlike some of the stuff I've done in the past. Uh, you're just going to place the gin, the St. Germain, and the lemon juice in a cocktail shaker with ice. You're going to shake that vigorously to make sure it's chill. Uh, then you're going to pour it into either a champagne flute or a champagne coupe. I went with a coupe because we're watching Nick and Nora. Makes sense, right? To me, it does. Uh, and then you're just going to top that off with the champagne. Throw in your lemon twist, and you are good to go. I have made up a full bottle's worth uh, going against the champagne, a full bottle of champagne's worth of these cocktails. So I'll be refilling through the night. I'm pouring my first one right now. I'm sorry, I drank one. I'm pouring my first refill right now. Oh, I should have, I should have shaken that. That's too late to go back in the bottle now. How long has this been going? I don't think you're gonna hear. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I don't know if you guys can pick up those bubbles, but it looks delightful. I can hear them. I can hear them bubbling. <sighs> so there we go. We're all very oh, impressed by the bubbles. Ooh. The French 75. So, this drink has an interesting history. Uh, interesting in the fact that no one really knows who made it or when it was made. Uh, its first appearance in print was during Prohibition, and that's when it became popular. It was in a bootlegger magazine called Here's How! with an exclamation point, 1927. <laughs> by 1930, though, it had been picked up by several other cocktail recipe books uh, that were much more notable and famous, and it became a nationwide staple. Uh, the history is, is pretty muddy though. Like Charles Dickens had a very, very, very similar recipe to the French 75 that he mentioned having in Boston, 1867. 
Uh, I think his was called like champagne cups and gin, because of course that's how they would call this drink in like the 1800s. That's so German uh, and then sounding. The, <laughs> I said it dumb, but sure. The drink actually got its name though from Scott Harry uh, McElhoney. I probably butchered that, but McElhoney uh, in 1926 for his bar Harry's American Bar in Paris. Uh, and he said he chose that name in honor of the 75 millimeter howitzer field guns that were used by the French soldiers during World War II, uh, which were known for their accuracy and speed. And he compared that to how you get drunk off this drink really fast and it kicked like a gun. Of course, Harry also said the drink was made at Bucks Club in London, which uh, that's uh, uh, who knows. Anyways, no one really knows where the drink came from or who made it, but we think we know who named it. It was named in the Prohibition, though, and that's kind of the fascinating period to me. Because it ties into this movie. We are technically still in the midst of the Prohibition during The Thin Man. So it made sense to drink something that would be period appropriate to what they would have had in the film. Plus, this is a tasty drink. So it all comes together. Not not to uh, take the thread away from the absolutely fantastic sounding drink uh, that you've made tonight. I'm still really hung up on the fact that there was a bootlegging magazine called Uh. Here's How. Yeah, apparently the police weren't that observant about alcohol laws <laughs> during Prohibition. And like, they might as well have just called it crime. <laughs> we don't care. Um, didn't matter. Yeah, no, it, it, I mean, drinking was surprisingly rampant during these periods. Uh, in, in the not-cities, I believe it was a lot harder to get yourself quality alcohol, so bartenders had to get way more creative with their drinks. Like, you would have bathtub gin, you'd be like, okay, no one wants to drink this, but they want to get drunk. What can we throw in here to make this acceptable? So prohibition drinks are fascinating to me because there's just so much creativity going on to make garbage not taste like garbage. That translates into modern days where it's like, hey, we have really cheap booze. How do we transform this into tasting good without spending money? It's fine. We'll just buy the rum in a plastic bottle. There'll be a lot of lemon juice and some pineapple. It'll be good. Same principle. Uh, just, you know, 100 years removed. Yeah, cheap and drunk never changes. Nope. And with um, that, folks, I think we're ready to... Oh, for the for the duration of this episode, Jamie, um, I would like it if we only referred to Cody as Beer Baron. Oh, mm, I accept that. I think Mike, did you do this just because I asked or said nicknames were really cool before? Because that was very nice. We're always thinking of you, Beer Baron. Oh, man. It is Christmas. It is Christmas. Happy holidays, everybody. We're doing the <laughs> Thin Man. <laughs> <laughs> it has a and Christmas scene in it. I, counts. Yeah. And since I, did, I thought it would be inappropriate for only Cody to be drinking, I'd like to announce that I am about to dig into. Yes! A, a Smirnoff Ice screwdriver I got from Walmart two hours ago. Yeah! Google Gobble, one of us! Ah, you can really taste the screw. Mm. Mike? I have water. Okay. It's out of a purple bottle. And aside to the mm-hmm. folks at home, <laughs> there's plenty of good reasons to not drink, and it's never okay to pressure people into drinking. Anyways, the move for tonight is The Thin Man. I hope you have your Blu-ray copy ready. Do you have it queued up? Because we're about to start. Good. I hope you are, folks at home. Hope you're goddamn ready for this. That was their last chance, and they just wasted it not getting the movie ready. Now you just have to listen to us for 91 minutes, you dipshits. Ugh. You won't know what Anyways. the fuck's happening. It's true. It's going to be confusing. Even if you watch them, it can get a little confusing. Yeah. We haven't even started really drinking. This is a shame. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We're going to give you a countdown (laughs) when we tell you 
hit the play button, you hit the play button, watch along with us, or you can treat us as a normal podcast. I, again, am never your parents, and I can't tell you how to live your life. Uh, Mike, would you want to give us the countdown to start the film? One. Two. Three. Okay, here we go. Ooh, it's the old, old MGM lion. She's a beaut. Lion's also dead. The legit Trademark. Yeah. Oh, for sure. That line was probably dead by like the time this movie started. Have, uh, Anyways, have uh, you ever seen the trailer to this, by the way? Yes, like Dashiell Hammett just pops out of a book and starts talking about the film. <laughs> no, it's it, it's Powell as um as Nick popping out of a book to talk to Powell's other literary detective character he played, and they just have a discussion about their cases. It's the most surreal <laughs> thing I've ever fucking seen. It's awesome. The way Ed should be. Uh, sorry, let me run through the movie facts real quick here. This film was directed by W.S. Van Dyke. You guys already stole my thunder by mentioning his nickname of One Take Woody. I was, I was real proud of the, finding that fact, but it's, I guess, pretty out there. Uh, Dyke was known for his filming speed and for bringing films in under budget. Uh, just, just absolutely gargantuan amounts of credits under his filmography. The guy was... Like lightning. It was a Roger Corman type deal where he'd just keep filming and filming and filming. Uh, he does have several Oscar nominations, though. So just because he made them fast doesn't mean he made them poorly. Uh, he had two nominations for Best Director, one for the movie we're watching now, The Thin Man, and another one for San Francisco, which I believe came out uh, two years after this, if I'm remembering right. Good stretch, the 1930s. Our screenplay is by Albert Hackett and Francis Goodrich. Uh, Albert and Francis... Albert. Albert and Francis were a married writing team. Uh, they earned a Pulitzer in 1956 for their stage adaption of The Diary of Anne Frank. Uh, and they also earned Oscar noms for this movie, uh, After the Thin Man, a sequel to this film, Father of the Bride, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, uh, and even provided the screenplay with Frank Capra for It's a Wonderful Life. So, wow, whole lot of credits for a, a pair of names most of us don't really recognize. Real matrimonial theme to their writing outfit, too. Yeah, it's like they might have liked each other. Uh, Hollywood preposterous. I I don't understand it. Uh, Couples should hate each other. I've seen Boomer Humor. Anyways, (laughs) our our cast, this is uh, William Powell as Nick Charles and Myrna Loy as Nora Charles, our leading couple. And they are everything to this film. Without these two people in the film, I don't think this works. They they bring so much charm and chemistry to the movie. The entire thing runs on them exclusively. Uh, our music is by William Axt. Cinematography by James Wong Howe. It was edited by Robert J. Kern. Released May 25th, 1934, which I'll get into it later. Blows my goddamn mind. Uh, the, the source novel, The Thin Man, came out January 1934. And it wasn't like... MGM knew about the source novel back in 1920 and had been waiting for the novel to release so they could put the movie out at the same time. The book came out, and then they adapted it into a movie in the span of several months. The speed just blows me away. I can't believe how quickly they did this. Uh, I had an asylum pictures turnaround on this. That fascinates me. It's insane. I couldn't believe I kept checking online like that. Numbers don't add up. Uh, anyways, our runtime here is one hour and 31 minutes. The budget was $226,000. 
uh, worldwide box office of $1.4 million. That was a huge, huge success at the time. Uh, so much so that the film would go on to make five sequels, After the Thin Man, 1936, Another Thin Man, 1939, Shadow of the Thin Man, 1941, The Thin Man Goes Home, 1944, Song of the Thin Man, uh, I haven't seen it, but what a title, 1947, and there was also a Thin Man television series that ran from 1957 through 1959. They got two seasons and uh, I don't know how many episodes, but a, a fairly large order, something like 70 episodes. And that was just the official Thin Man canon. There's been threats of remakes of this. There's been all sorts of homages throughout Detective and just general movies, like Nicky Nora's Infinite Playlist just lists the character names. Why not? The reason we have Elongated Man and Sue Dibney. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They, they couple Detective's entire genre because of the Thin Man. Entirely. This movie, it's hard uh, to, to say how much this movie has influenced people. And a lot of folks have never seen the original Thin Man. I mean, granted, this came out in 1930, so a lot of folks just don't know about it, but they know about it through cultural osmosis. This is the progenitor of so many different detective tropes and ideas. It's, it's really astounding. This is the source. Also, very funny. People should watch this movie now, <laughs> even if you're not into early oh, films. It's still very funny. Comedy normally doesn't age well. This is, I think, our first joke in the film where the man says, don't worry, I took my tip out of your change. And the guy counts it and realizes he's been fucked over. Like, it's a good subtle yeah. joke because it's never truly explained to the audience, but you can pick it up if you're just paying attention to the facial reactions. Yeah, I showed this uh, to my girlfriend this week. It was the first time I'd seen any of the uh, of these movies. And yeah, this is still a laugh riot, like nearly 100 years later. It's such a clever screenplay. The dialogue is is razor sharp still, and most of the acting really just kills it. The reactions are so funny. Some of the background gags are really, really good between Nick and Nora. It's 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 wonderful. It's truly a laugh riot. I want that put on the DVD cover, WB. I said it, all right? <laughs> put it on the cover. So we've we've missed a couple important things here. We haven't seen Nick and Nora yet. Uh, it's almost like a horror film where you have to see a couple eaten by the shark so you know there's a threat. We have to see all the suspects and the murder victim so we kind of have an understanding of what will proceed after this. Uh, let's see. We see Wynett, who is the titular thin man. He's on screen right now looking inside the safe. That's a funny idea because did you guys think actor Edward Ellis was particularly thin? No. no. There's like a shot where he's kind of exaggeratedly thin towards the right before he disappears, and that that's about it. Yeah, like he doesn't look like that thin. He looks like a pretty normal old man. Uh, and yet audiences associated the detective, Nick Charles, with the moniker of the thin man, and that's why all the sequels have he's to actually be like, thin! Another thin man. Uh, the thin man returns, the thin man goes home. And it's like, okay, that's weird. The thin man's the victim in this film. <laughs> Spoilers. Thin man dies. So there's technically no more Thin Men. Uh, I so wish there was a scene uh, where Powell punches this guy in the face and says, you're not the Thin Man, I am. Like, he takes the mantle (laughs) from him. Do you thin? You will. I mean, we don't know if Nick wasn't secretly the killer all along, just trying to create a game for his wife. Why hasn't that been the plot to a detective story, where the detective really is... Or Nora, that's true. We should be... It's just a long Halloween. 
we should put this on. That should be it. The killer is the detective hired to, you know, investigate himself. That's like a man above suspicion. I haven't seen that movie, so I have to assume I'm being completely original right now. Uh, and and then he just spins yarns like Hercule Poirot until someone goes to jail for him. <laughs> and it makes sense with Nick and Nora because that'd be the only way. Like that's the only thing that uh, summons the horniness in Nora. <laughs> that's the one come. thing she's into. Yeah, I have never seen a, a fictional character more primally aroused by the idea of uh, slapstick whodunit shenanigans than Nora Charles. I hope. I really hope you're going to say murder most foul. <laughs> Didn't happen. So while this has been going on, we've been introduced to several suspects. And it's it's kind of interesting. I don't know how many other detective stories have done the same. Normally they wait till the detective gets involved and then they start meeting all the people that we have to suspect. Here, it's not set up that way. We meet a lot of the suspects, not all of them, but a good number of people and get some clues. And then something like 10, 15 minutes into the movie, we meet the actual detective. So yeah, right now we have the motivation for one of the victims. Yeah. So the, the case here is... Uh, Wine's secretary has been stealing from him for years. He needs the money to give to his daughter as kind of a wedding dowry, I guess. Just a wedding gift, if you're being less cynical. Uh, but she has stolen the money, and he's trying to get it back from her. Now, Wynette mentions she has an accomplice, but doesn't mention who it is. And we see Joe leave the building when Wynette comes in. So we've got all of those guys we have to worry about. And we also meet Wynette's lawyer. But the movie is doing a different approach there, where the lawyer seems like he cares about Wynette. He wants to know what his plans are. He wants to know if he has enough money. He checks to see if Wynette has the right amount of cash at the start. Like, he does all the trustworthy things to put himself out of consideration. Spoilers, that guy totally did it. But the movie makes a pretty good effort to introduce him first and go, not this guy. He's a friend, a true pal. He cares. He looks like Roy Disney. You can trust him. Yeah. And then we see, like, this guy on the phone with scars who won't answer the phone. The movie goes out of its way to make everyone else after the lawyer look incredibly suspicious and the kind of person who has a reason to kill Wynan. Which I like. It's, it's okay. It's a good bit of misdirection because the person you last see, you're probably going to blame. But if it's someone from, like, the start of the movie, you have a good chance of forgetting about them. That's why so many movies do that where they introduce, like in the Scooby-Doo method, a character in the first act like the receptionist at the hotel, and they only show them like one more time throughout the episode so you don't forget about them, but you don't really think about them. The lawyer here, though, is constant throughout the whole thing. They did a very good job uh, covering his tracks, I would say. Yeah, I, I kind of think that is part of the genius of that screenplay, which is outside of, uh, outside of Marina O'Sullivan, and uh, her fiancé, you kind of just hate all of these characters that you're oh, yeah. being introduced to. They're all various, varying levels of shifty and weird, up until the actual murder being a bit, an objectively deplorable character. So you're interested in how this is going to resolve because it's such a strange series of events and all these characters are so bizarre in their own way. But Only one his daughter bad. and her fiancé actually seem likable people. They seem like generally nice people, but everyone around them is awful. So you, you immediately discount her as a suspect. Yeah, like there's just enough pathos there for you to kind of give a shit, but not enough so that it ever drags the movie down. So the audience can have the same uh, 
the same attitude towards the mystery that the Charleses do, where it's just an amusing romp. Yeah. So I think that, like if you had any like emotional investment in any of these suspects, yeah, you would spend too much time worrying about them to actually enjoy the movie. <laughs> Especially since when it dies off screen. And it's it, like part of you not knowing he's dead is a huge factor in the film. Uh, so to, to go back a second, we just got introduced to Nick Charles, our main detective. And according to production legend, I, I doubt some of this, uh, the director told Powell to, to basically approach the bar and act through the scene in a dry run so they could test it for recording equipment and the lights. Uh, he threw in some ad libs and kind of fucked around a little bit. And it was funny enough for them to actually be recording the whole time because the director's plan was to try and catch the actors in their most spontaneous and realistic portrayal of the characters. I don't, I don't know how much I believe that. I feel like there were multiple shots inside of there. So if they liked to take, maybe they told them to keep parts of it and they redid it. But again, this is one take Woody. So it's, it's tough to say all these years later. I, I don't necessarily believe the idea that they only filmed that shot once and it was a surprise. They, they probably did the bits and pieces. Uh, otherwise, yeah. Van Dyke was very much known for tricking his actors into filming rehearsals. He'd always, Which... He always wanted to get the most spontaneous, like, and then pretty much force them not to do more takes. It's why it, there's very little coverage. If you yeah. could get away with not doing coverage for extra takes, you just would not just not well, do it Well, it really speeds it along, too. Like, it, <laughs> you don't have to do multiple setups, because if you fuck up one, we're done. That scene isn't in the movie. But, uh, boy, it, it honestly is the perfect match for this material, because as much as of a mystery as this is, we don't give a shit. What viewers care about in this film is Nick and Nora. Their relationship and how they interact with other characters is what we're here for. It's really a character piece that just happens to have a good mystery behind it. So the approach of, hey, how can we make the actors feel like they have a lot of chemistry with each other is absolutely the right take, and it works so well for this film. I think that's about that too. I... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, that's why I love how uh, the screenwriters were just told to just just make Nick and Nora likable. Like, we'll, we'll fix the weird, like, elaborate murder mystery in post. Like, we, we can just edit that into being interesting and engaging. You just focus on making us love these characters as much as possible. And I also think this, this is a, a fairly unconnected subject, but for years I grew up with people talking about uh, Browning's Dracula and how, oh, that guy just plunked the camera down. He filmed like a stage musical and it's no good and the Spanish version is better. Which is kind of criticism I could see people applying towards this film, where a lot of it is just, okay, but there's no coverage. Very few insert shots. It's really just the actors playing in front of the camera. But you don't criticize this film, but you criticize Dracula? I think sometimes we're hypercritical of older films that let the action play out between the frames. Uh, uh, I don't know. It just, it just feels like we're too hard on that film for doing a pretty close impersonation of what's going on here, where it's just, we want to get through there and we want to let the actors kind of handle the heavy weights. I think yeah, Dracula's uh, one of the best lines in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Bring me um, five martinis and line them up here. <laughs> I think a lot of it just has to do with energy as well. Like this is the way it's shot. It really should be kind of ponderous, like almost, um, almost a bit like a rope. 
a rope's very i mean rope's like supposed to be one whole shot but it's it's very it it comes across as more ponderous than the script actually is or you just kind of glaze over sometimes this is so full of energy just from Plus, dialogue they location and, quite a bit too yeah there's a lot of different lo- surprisingly number of different locations it's incredibly well shot like for something that was just shot in two weeks and you know in series of one takes with a lot yeah. of improv too it's just it's actually kind of a beautiful film yeah wow. it's i'm not complaining about that aspect and another thing too if you were to take a stopwatch to this i don't know how long an average shot would be for this film but if you were to compare it to something new Boy, I like even something like the Murder on the Orient Express, uh, uh, a remake I actually enjoy quite a bit. We've covered it before. Boy, I, I don't even think they'd be in the same ballpark. Like the the amount of time a movie like this can spend on a shot and think is fine is is nowhere close to a modern day film where it has to cut constantly to make conversations interesting. Something I don't think is really true, but filmmakers swear by. Peter Jackson will tell you, like when he's doing interrogation scenes for something like The Frighteners. He had a hard time doing them because he felt like he had to keep moving the camera around or else people would lose interest. I, I have a little more faith in audiences, maybe. I think you can still make a scene interesting without having to constantly jump the camera around and reorientate people. If the people on screen are engaging enough, look at that. Oh, it's delightful. Nick and Nora just fucking around in the background. I love their play fighting. They're not actually exchanging dialogue. They're just goofing around. Well, there's like, there's, the actual killer is in stuff. front of them trying to plant a red herring about a murder he's committed most foul. They're fucking around in the background. It's lovely. Like, that holds my attention. The camera hasn't cut. Still waiting. Still waiting. Still waiting. It's forever. It's still going. There it goes. It's insane how different this movie is compared to a modern film. And I, I think that's why people, maybe current audiences, have a hard time getting into films from the 30s because there's just a di- different sensibility in how things are filmed. Yeah. This is one of the few films I think from the. I mean, not that I think uh, 30s films and 40s films were particularly still. I think that's a misnomer, but. Well, you can see the camera uh, is moving left and right quite a bit. Yeah, it's whipping around there's a lot. lot of but if, you, if you notice, like the movie is 90% master shots. That's all yeah. it is. But if you look, the camera's constantly moving in those master shots. And whenever it goes still, you see that the action of what the actors are doing suddenly becomes a little bit more pronounced. Even if it's someone like picking up a phone and handing it over to somebody, like the camera stops moving and then the characters take up the movements where the camera now is lacking in that. No one is still in the movie. You can really tell. Like, if you're looking at the characters right now, one is just constantly moving your hands and, and, and jumping up and down a little bit. So you have a point there. I kind of think of it in, in modern terms, maybe something like uh, Guillermo Navarro, where when he films, it's almost snake-like, where the camera holds a long time, but it's constantly moving in or slowly zooming or twisting about. So there is a sense of agency to kind of portray the action within the frame. Also, this character. Oh, God, this whine child. Oh, this, this fucking, fucking putz. freak. That, um, this guy I'm pretty... here, this Cesar Romero, hey! Uh, <laughs> character mustache. fucking pops back up in the Castle Freak remake. Oh. <laughs> I still need to see that. Just, just, okay, like, so he has some of the best stupid funny lines. Like, Gilbert is just such a dipshit, but he's, he's the faux intellectual the movie needs. 
I still, I'm still convinced this uh, character went on to uh, visit a cemetery in the the late '60s <laughs> with his sister. It went when the world just fell. <laughs> this guy does seem like he should be part of a Lovecraft story where he accidentally unleashes undescribable evil. Maybe live in a painting. I feel like this is the closest window we've gotten into Lovecraft at home. In in the '30s, yeah. the time he was writing away. Mm-hmm. Anyways, during this scene, I mean, we've met our detectives, and now we're moving on. We've kind of met several other people we've already been warned about. The family has been told to us it, they're they're shitty, and we get to see them shitty. They're money grubbing. They're they're not as smart as they think they are. We get a sense these aren't characters we should trust, and we know a murder's gonna happen. Why it's disappeared? So we have to assume it's him. The movie will twist on that later, but. We we get the sense that you better step away from this family. They could be suspects. It's still it's doing a good job. We're twenty minutes into an hour and a half movie, and it's still laying a lot of groundwork as to who we should trust. Yeah, that's something I really appreciate about uh, so many noirs. Even though I guess this would uh, kind of be proto noir at this point, but yeah. I always love how it's nor adjacent. How- it's uh, it's like the Stooges, man. It laid the groundwork. For- <laughs> uh, it's from Dashiell Hammett. He's like the Nor grandfather. So fuck anything he he spit out, it goes into the same umbrella. But I I just love uh, noirs of this era with how long you get to spend with uh, suspects and like various other antagonists, and specifically the first act because it's such a modern screenwriting thing to always save that stuff for the middle or even sometimes the third act of the movie. That's uh, again, like to bring up knives out again. That's something I really adore about that. Just no, let's let you're going to meet all of the assholes in the first 15 minutes. And we're going to make you wait for the characters you should actually sympathize with. (laughs) It's such an ingenious way of laying out stakes because you get all the heavy lifting done at the beginning of the movie. when people are still sitting down in their chairs. It's domino setting. Mm-hmm. Also fascinating. I mean, we, we just mentioned Knives Out, and I just want to say, what a what a movie! God damn, what a film! <laughs> <laughs> what a uh, tale! Going back, going back to Hammett for a second, this this is always um, such an outlier story for Hammett, and it always kind of fascinates me because it's still not really certain why Hammett wrote The Thin Man, and I kind of it's love not the his normal thing. It's so normally it's not anything he would delve into, especially at the period he was. <laughs> That's why I kind of like the the postulation that he knew what audiences probably would rather read at the time than normal Hammett, which would be very not much more nihilistic and be very prodding cynical. at the reality of everything. I mean, yeah, Hammett wrote books that were basically like, here's a man with no name trying to fight both sides because all sides are corrupt. And then, like, his last book. This was his last book, 1934. The man lived to the 60s, which blew my mind. Uh, this was his last story, 1934. And it's about a loving couple that gets boozy and solves investigations through charm and wit. It feels like someone entirely different took this story on compared to everything else it gave us. It is very weird. 
Yeah, and I think, and if that was his goal, I mean, it's interesting that how correct he was because from, from a psychological People standpoint, people fucking love the Thin Man. <laughs> yeah, but from a psychological standpoint, it, it's like now where. You have a bunch of people going, please, Hollywood, please do not make a bunch of COVID movies or pandemic movies or socially dis distanced movies or, or anything like that, because you think that's what we need to, you know, get all these feelings out. It actually always ends up going the exact opposite. Like on paper, the Thin Man being the great outlet that would set the world on fire during the Great Depression makes no fucking sense. Here's a bunch of rich people getting supernaturally not drunk by drinking all the time. <laughs> I would argue not, Nick is very drunk in a lot of these scenes. <laughs> it's true. Where And without a care in the world, like zero care, all the money, murder is not even a big fucking deal. Like, it is nihilistic in the habit way of it. where Nick... And Nora have absolutely no emotional attachment, despite there being a family friend involved, have no emotional attachment to solving this case and just begrudgingly do it, at least on Nick's part. Right, Nora's all into it. She wants to solve this Nora case. Nora wants it, but it's just for fun. It's just, a, it's. Yeah, it's something to do. So the opposite the of, of what she would expect the people going through what people were going through at the time would want to see on screen but it is actually what people want like it's almost a fantasy film it's upbeat in a time of unimaginable suffering like this this was dead center in the great depression uh moving into world war ii real <laughs> rough time for the world and boy despite this movie having three murders is it only three i think it's three pretty chipper pretty upbeat pretty happy it reminds me of a lot of when America was going through the recession in the 2000s, and two of the biggest shows in America were Sex and the City and Entourage. It's a curious thing, like the, hu the human side. I would psyche. explain Entourage. <laughs> when we're at moments of extreme poverty, like we, we break the... Uh, in case of a world recession, admire millionaires button. I will say it's it's mostly I, I think correct what we're saying. I'm sure there's some sort of sociologist who will look in and be like, you dipshits. But from my point of view, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Except for horror. I feel like in times of strife, horror movies don't have to be that way. They can just horror be horror movies down. and people love them. Yeah. Think, something like Host. People went bananas for Host, which in the end... Not really an optimistic movie. It, it's not portrayed grimly. It's it's a pretty fun film with a dour <laughs> set of events. But people loved it. And it came out during 2020 where everyone's locked down thanks to COVID. The economy is in the trash. Trump is still president and we weren't sure if we were going to get rid of him. There, there was a lot of bad stuff happening. And the general sentiment of the audience was, life sucks. And it gave us a movie that kind of echoed the same, but also went, eh, we're having a fun time while it sucks, right? I think uh, horror can play by different rules. I think horror thrives on when things are shitty, is, is what I'm trying to get at. That's like what we've said, like we talked about before, like comedy and horror are uh, these two sides of the same coin. But yeah. it's, it, it's fascinating how, 
how opposite they are in that regard. Like co- with comedy, it's like, for the love of God, lie to me. With horror, it's <laughs> anything but lie to me. Tell me the truth. Please tell me the truth. I need to hear it no matter how bad it is. I like that a lot. That is a very nice way of summing it up. <laughs> and plus, like, like, going back to the, uh, the, the escapist uh, aspect of this, it, I, I have always thought of this movie as coming out in, like, 1941 or something. I did not realize how closely this movie was released to the end of Prohibition. I mean, like you said earlier, like, the novel was written, like, I believe during Prohibition, or at least right like a year or two after. Yeah, I, I don't know how long it took Hammett to write stuff. They did uh, eventually publish a first draft of the story, so I'm sure we could look that up if I wasn't bad at research. But the book is set in December 1932. Prohibition was officially repealed, uh, I believe, uh, this is off the top of my head, I'm a little drunk, December 4th, 1933. So I'm assuming the movie takes place the same time as the book. It's one year away from Prohibition happening. If you're watching what's happening on the screen, Nick has just been walking around a party of his friends for Christmas, handing out cocktails, like forcing people to take them. Cops and criminals included. It's just all the people he's known in his life. No one gives a shit he is giving away alcohol. This is extremely illegal what he's doing. His wife is doing the same. She's just following up, making sure everyone who hasn't taken a cocktail, and even those who have, take another cocktail. Nobody cares because they're rich socialites. Yeah, I believe the book is takes place like a great deal of uh, Hammett's novel takes place in illegal speakeasies. Like it's a much, it's still very light and breezy, but it's a lot more uh, seedier. Yeah, and noirish in its aesthetics. I guess that just that adds to the superhero fantasy of wouldn't you love to be just just hanging out with your spouse, solving mysteries, and getting absolutely hammered. Only a, yes. only like a year yes. completely illegal. One one thing I want to point out here. Does anyone else get the vibe? This is the fucking Adams family for detective stories. <laughs> yes. I, I can see that. Very much so, yeah. We just have a couple that love each other but are kind of weird. And uh, traditionally people would espouse them as being bad people because they're constantly drunk. Now your liver would disagree with my prognosis because it's it's dying. But in general, those stories play out as, oh, he's a drunk who hates his wife and probably hits her. In this case, it's, they're sauce because they're rich and bored, but they love each other deeply and sincerely in every way, and no one really cares that they're drunk. Nick is drunk all the time. Like, you can see Nick stealing drinks from people constantly. There, There's, like, so many points where someone asks him something like, is that my drink? Were you drinking bourbon? Yes, it was yours. Just just kind of scenes where Nick is stealing drinks from folks. This man is clearly sauced the entirety of the movie. But there's Everything something wonderful. To be. <laughs> I would, something- if I could be Nick, Mike, I, I, I would believe in heaven. I, I'm not Mike. I get drunk in my house alone, and it's much less entertaining. <laughs> you still solve murders, though. Yeah, but I don't tell oh. anyone. So it's it's it kind of is a wash because the murderer goes free until they're seventy. Matt, man, that is the ultimate solving a murder and then keeping it to yourself. I keep cracking zodiac puzzles, but I don't want to like ruin the fun for all the other people working on them, so I don't say anything. And it's just you know, it's no good for anyone. There's something so adorable about like imagining people going to see this movie in uh in the 30s and this being like. 
some kind of wild Seth Rogen comedy to them. Like, oh, they're drinking and flirting with each other in front of guests. Oh, how rude. Parts of this, yeah, had to be trimmed down after the movie released because they decided, oh, no, that was that was too much. Like, you stay away from my tabloids when Nick is referring to not being hit in the fucking junk. Uh, <laughs> to back up for a second, though, in, in terms of this being a Seth MacFarlane comedy, we just had a man who's been weeping throughout the entire scene finally say, I just want to call my mom and tell her I love her. And Nick's like, why the fuck don't you? You're in a house with a phone. He's like, I don't have any nickels. He's like, you're in a house with a phone. This joke will continue playing as the man finally gets a hold of his mother, Nick being annoyed because it's a long-distance call, which used to cost money. Kids these days, kids these days, I shake my hand at the clouds. 1-800-COLLECT. Phone calls used to be appraised based on how goddamn far you were calling. Yeah, we used um, to have to go to Alf and Hulk Hogan to make our collect calls. <laughs> Bob had a baby, it's a boy. Um, anyways, anyways, this man makes a long-distance call. They're in New York. Uh, all the way out to San Francisco, and Nick's pissed, but he's not going to say anything. Why would he? His wife has got his wife is so rich. It's the height of the Great Depression, and she doesn't even care about money. She doesn't even think about cash. These are the we should eat these people, to be honest. Uh, but it's fine. Money is no object to them. Anyways, this man plays out the scene, weeping about his mother, calling his mother, finally gets a hold of his mother, only for a reporter to run up and hang the phone up on him so he can make a tabloid call for some, like, just just worthless news. Which I don't think is commentary. I don't think it's actually saying anything about the times. I just think it's a really cruel, funny joke. Also, this That's scene, all- I want to I mention this scene. I love this so much for the character development. So we have Nick <laughs> hugging another woman. In any other low-rent drama trying to make trouble between the romantic leads, this would be the scene. The the split between husband and wife. She would walk in and see Nick hugging another woman and assume he's cheating on her. In this case, Nora walks in. Nick makes a face at her. Nora makes a face back. The girl apologizes. Nora says, shut up. And is never mentioned again. It's not a problem because they trust each other and they know this is not a thing. This is not something I would be mad at my husband about. I love him. He loves me. This is just a crazy woman who's probably drunk. Or as we find out later on, uh, is involved in a murder mystery and her dad might be dead. Or murder. Still, we don't have that lazy, dramatic beat we've seen in so many other goddamn things. I'm looking at you, X-Men 3. Iceman (laughs) and Rogue. (laughs) Yeah, you hear that? You hear me in the past, Brett Ratner? I just I just love the fact that they make a joke out of this and move on. It feels like something that was made in reaction to 70 years worth of history of lazy dramatic beats rather than preceding all of them. This was first. This took dramatic irony and stuff and went, ah, fuck that. These characters just love each other. This is going to be a thing that makes them mad at each other. That's dumb. I remember, I remember uh, there um, was, a I think, another studio head at the time where this came out who had a quote that said, uh, essentially... Usually, marriage is where you end the picture. You don't start the picture with the marriage because the marriage is the end of all things. Something that movies to this day still struggle with. And I actually think that's part... That has something to do with why people at the time latched on to this film is for people who had absolutely nothing, seeing an actual like positive reflection of the one thing they did have that was in common with the people on screen, which is their family connection, the marriage between husband and wife, and it actually being positive and a good thing, 
probably worked very well for them. I mean, this is it works so right now. unusual for movies at the time, now. When was the last time you can think of a movie where there was a married couple that was happy? And there was, was the main players in the film. Beginning to end. Like, I, I can't think of it. Normally, their marriage becomes in jeopardy and the marriage is saved at the end like they're getting remarried. This film, the marriage is never in doubt. They do things against each other because they love each other. Uh, we'll have scenes where Nick essentially throws Nora out of the investigation because he doesn't want her to get hurt. And we'll have scenes where Nora tries to supersede her husband and, and either push him into the investigation or talk over him to his superiors to give clues because they love each other. And that's it. It's never a moment where they, they're mad at each other so they have to do something in revenge or save the relationship. That's never in question. These characters truly love each other. They're married for a reason because they play off each other so well. There's great chemistry. It's a joy and a treat to watch them. And for some reason, modern films are always like, hey, uh, what if only the Conjuring movies were the only films to get that? Oh, God, I wish Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson had this kind of back and forth while, some, like, while exercising demons. Yeah, I mean, they have it before the demons, though. They have some great moments. I really love them. Yeah, but they don't have nice. sex. Oh, no. They, they like, play Elvis Elm, and they touch noses, and they go to bed in separate beds. Their daughter's actually a ghost. I really... Okay, sorry. I'm I'm still watching this with the uh, Google Hangouts Translate on, and it translated couple beds, separate beds, to suffer beds. (laughs) Suffer beds. Suffer beds. I like the idea of couples not sleeping in the same beds as suffer beds, because fuck you, I've been in a relationship. Separate beds are not suffer beds. Every no, I girl I've slept with in the same bed is it's uh, terrible. We want to be in separate beds. We can snuggle for a time... while, then I'll go sleep all over my bed. You know, uh, honestly, Mr. Serta Salesman, every time I go to lay down after a long day's work, the last thing I need to do is have Julia's skinless arms and legs wrap around me. I want my money back, sir. It's too much. It's too much. I want to spread. I want to spread eagle some nights. Anyway, Serta, fuck you. Normalize people sleeping in separate beds, fucking in one. Oh, okay. I actually just want to... Couples, okay, this is a weird This is a weird idea for society. I'm going to throw it out there because no one listens. Couples should have three twin beds. One for the husband, one for the wife, one for fucking. You guys fuck, and then you go to your separate beds, and you worry about the third bed in the morning. God, he looks comfortable. Uh- Right? <laughs> Besides the drink. I like how he wakes up and he's like, oh, I have to go to my fifth bar in this house. <laughs> <laughs> what a life. I'm so jealous of this couple. I really wish I had everything he has. A beautiful, also, uh, understanding wife who uh, affords all my fantasies and, and five bars. And a dog maybe... that knows tricks. Oh, a dog that's a cartoon dog. Like the one from Inspector Yeah. Dancer. Exactly. That's all I want, Mike. That's that's all I'm asking for out of this crazy, wacky, garbage life. All I want out of marriage is wishbone. (laughs) (laughs) Jamie, you can't do that while I'm taking a drink of French 75. (laughs) I'm going to spit carbonated champagne out my nose, and that hurts. Carbonated stuff shouldn't come out the nose. I heard that's how Sammy Davis Jr. died. I would believe it. My favorite uh, Myrna Loy... Trivia fact of mine is discovered by Valentino. 
Whoa, and that should be on someone's tombstone. What? I would, yeah, fuck that. That sounds awesome. What, Mike, do you know any more details? Can you tell us a tale? Discovered by Valentino someplace she was at. Valentino Sar. Oh, hey, there's Nick fucking stealing another goddamn drink. Um, okay, there are a lot of notes I kind of skipped past here. Just going back to the Christmas party, boy, if it wasn't 2020, that would look like heaven, wouldn't it? Just a bunch of weird-ass drunks in your house, cops and robbers together, saying old sign lang. While you shirk your duties to investigate a murder? Man, I just I just love how charming it is. The husband goes through, makes everyone take a drink. He fucking shit-talks the people in the house. Then he invites over his friends. Uh, and then the wife follows after, and she double-seuses everyone. Everyone gets a second drink. What a party. I would love to throw that party. In my apartment, if COVID weren't a thing, I'd be doing that right now. Is it Wednesday? Yes. Would I be having that kind of party? Yes. This guy looks like um, Colin Farrell as the penguin. Oh, you thought that. <laughs> I did not. Two out of three dentists agree. <laughs> he does look like he's in constant pain, which uh, yeah, seems it's, to match uh, you know, the look of Colin Farrell as the penguin. It's the 30s double chin and bared teeth. Also, also, bad strategy. Like, hey, I need you to prove my innocence. Let's hold you up with a gun. It was this the 30s. The most... That's the only way people had to communicate. You see? Yeah. This is the most Nick Charles thing in the world, being uh, stuck up while wearing silk pajamas. And I love that, hey, my Long wife's job. fine with it, but I get a little nervous around guns. Just the, <laughs> <sarcasm> <laughs> of... the, the whole scene, too, like... Shoot! Oh God! No! What I meant was explain. Like you can see the panic on his face, and the robber's like, "Uh, robber's the wrong term." This dude's just like, "Uh, I don't want to shoot you, but you said so." He's stupid enough to do it. Meanwhile, Nora's in the background, like, "You fucking idiot!" You can see it in her face before she even calls him an idiot. Oh, it's it's so good on everyone's part. I love the acting here. Also, goddamn, Nick looks like he is drunk. Like the way he acts in this scene, just. God damn. I woke up in the middle of the night because I am drunk. Let me punch my wife and throw a pillow at you. <laughs> this is this is the action of a drunk. Like, my wife can't be in the line of fire. Better punch her. Ah, action man! I was at a bar once. Uh, this this place was called Shenanigans in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. We, the locals all call it Shenans. It's, it's the dance club of the college town of Eau Claire. And I remember once, I went with a buddy. My friend forgot his shoes. So he walked into the bar barefoot. Someone had broken a beer bottle on the dance floor, so he walked through it and was just bleeding on the floor. That's apropos of nothing. I just wanted to set the scene a little. He's doing a diehard while we're very drunk. We're, this is the end of the stop for the night. So it's like 1.30. We're both super, super drunk. We're on the dance floor. Paul is being very successful with a couple of women, and one of... Uh, the man who fancies himself their boyfriend is is threatening Paul with punches. He's going to feed him some fists. And me, like a rocket drunk on the other side of the dance floor, sees this, raises his arm like it's a rocket, and just runs through the crowd to punch this man. I, I just ran through the crowd at this guy. Before I hit him, though, Paul goes, Ah, it's fine, man! We're just drunk! And the guy goes, All right, buddy, get out of here! And Paul turned... And I had to swing away from his face and turn and just walk out of the bar so this man didn't beat me to death. You just walked out into the street punching air? It was pretty close. I punched nothing 
next to the man and just kept walking so he didn't have time to understand. I, I, he, he just thought I was a bad dancer. God, I'm so glad you didn't like hit, the, hit a police horse or something. That's what would have happened. If this were a 1930s four movie, there would have been a police horse involved, and then I would have been interviewed by Josh Brolin from Inherent Vice. Look at this man and tell me that's not an accurate description of him. <laughs> this man has an extraordinary profile. Just he's, he's that classic film noir dunderhead. Like, he's on the side of the law, so he's technically good. But he's so belligerent and stupid that he misses everything important. Like, there's no reason well, this love- man should be a cop. He's shit at his job. He couldn't catch a blind man. I love noir cops that always have this perpetual look of angry confusion on their face, regardless of the context. Right. Like, he's supposed to be Nick's friend, and he's still like, I'm gonna fuck this up! Maybe they called that resting, what's the big idea face? <laughs> it really is. Yeah, this Although, movie is just such a cavalcade of chins. I love it. Well, and it's such a predecessor for so many things I would follow, because this is basically every detective on the police since. Until, like, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, that's just the guy. That's just how it was. Also, we had a moment where Nora goes, why is he digging in my drawers? That had to be censored from the 1935 version of the movie. Again, the movie came out in 34 and was very successful. It was out for like a year and then censored went, wait, 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 what the fuck? Ah! And, and actually edited copies of the film to remove some of those lines. This scene here, okay, this is also kind of famous in Thin Man lore. Apparently it was inspired because Nick Powell Nick Powell, I'm just combining names now. Um, Powell saw the the air gun, which was a, a prop dressing, picked it up and started shooting it at ornaments that the prop department was laying out for the scene. And Dyke went, yeah, no, I can make something out of that. So it got incorporated <laughs> into the movie, just him fucking up the prop department. But it works so perfectly in this film. You have Nora just watching Nick like, you fucking idiot, what are you doing? You have Nick shooting the balloons after just having been shot the night before. So bored with his life without a crime or a party or drinking that he, he's just fucking around. He doesn't care. He's shooting out windows. He's shooting balloons. It's just something to keep him active. And it's the idle rich portrayal that really makes you believe that, yes, they would put themselves in the line of fire to solve a crime because they really can't be satisfied doing anything else. The fact that it's a happy accident just blows my mind. Like, well, what a coincidence. The film needs this scene, and it wouldn't have happened unless the actor had been fucking around in his spare time between setups. And it's such a nice, uh, like, Sherlock Holmes fucking around with his violin moment. Not high on heroin? Just j- just high on uh, vodka and the asbestos that was being poured into the air at the time. <laughs> just pumped yeah. in there to make sure your lungs were insulated from fire. I also love how it's not called out that Nora's just wearing her Christmas gift, which is a giant fur coat just in the house, bored with a bored expression on her face. Well, the funny thing about it, too, is Nick's like, did I get that for you? And she's like, oh, yes, you did. Which, technically, yes, but all of Nick's money comes from Nora. Nora has all the cash. <laughs> Nick picked out a thing for Nora to buy herself, essentially, is what happened. And... <laughs> Like, you can tell there's a certain amount of disdain in him, like, I didn't truly buy that for you, because you bought it with your money. I just said, that's it. And Nora probably told him, I want that, and he said, yes, you shall have it. <laughs> so he's just enabling her, spending her money to dig too They're deep the into the perfect couple. 
They really are. And there's an age difference. That was one of the problems they had casting Powell because he was too old. And a lot of the work he did before this was very serious. Both are correct things. Nowadays, if this movie came out, people would be going like, why is there like a a, a 30-year-old woman with a 50-year-old man? But these characters clearly love each other so much and interact so well, you understand like, oh, yeah, fuck, they should be married. These these people should be a couple. If they're married to other people, they'd just be miserable. Is it me or hey, is hey, Nick Charles like the, the anti-Perot? Oh, very much. Yeah. Like he's, Smash, but he's not fussy. Yeah, it's like he's hyper supernaturally confident and gifted at this but he just it's not that he's apathetic he he just he's retired he just it was just a job he doesn't have any he's not emotionally involved in any of it but i also feel like he tries to get away from it partially because the protection of his wife like if he's involved with death cases his wife is smart enough where she wants to be involved she wants to do what he does and you see that where he has to lead her astray and try and get her out of harm's way. And in this scene, you can tell he's so goddamn bored. He just wants a murder to work on. It really, He's just staring at the gun right now. Uh, it just it just feels like he really wants to be part of something bigger and more action. But he loves his wife so much, he's like, I have to find a way where she won't be anywhere near the danger. It's also, really to go back to the lawyer popping back in. It. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is. Uh, the lawyer pops up throughout the movie several times and it's always to lay down a track of I need to readjust the plot <laughs> which is fascinating because he he's laying out red herrings to guide away from himself I think at one point he literally says well doesn't that change the story after he talks about having talking to one at in the flesh even though one has been dead it's it's really it's very clever filming because as you yeah, like how by the this, end like by the final scene where it essentially takes out the yeah, as you return to it, like, from the ending, you go, oh, it's so obvious. This guy just keeps coming in because he knows Nick's a threat. Nick's the only man with the imagination to call him out on his bullshit. So he has to steer Nick away and make Nick his alibi, his alley. And he's really just talking shit the whole time. It's really, I think, one of the more clever aspects of the script. Like, that's why you don't really suspect the lawyer, because he's been in here so many times being earnest, being the guy to provide information to Nick directly. He's not the guy who's lying. He's not the guy who's stealing. He's not the guy running away from the police. He's trying to help. He cares. Well, no, he doesn't. He's just, he's smart enough to get away with it. Almost. He's just trying to take back this company from that bastard Michael Eisner. <laughs> Are we going to, is this Disney, the story? Is that where we're making this? Somehow this prognosticated the entire it's, Disney empire. Apparently just anybody with a mustache. That's all it takes. Oh, man. Great ass visual gag. Yeah. I'm so, I'm kind of bummed. COVID is theoretically ending soon since the vaccine is out there. And I just think of all the times where I could have shaved a mustache into myself and no one would have known because I would have been hidden away in my house for six months. I didn't do it. You should have tried. Oh, you should have gone with like Wolverine mutton chops. I did, I did a mustache once at work and, and lived with it for a month. Uh, and, and the office manager came up to me. She's like, I don't know. It's kind of a pedo look. You should, you, you, mm, I'm not telling you to get rid of it, but it looks bad. Which is a shame because I posted a selfie of me online. I'm like, this is the best I've ever looked. And uh, apparently the best I've ever looked is just what other people perceive as a pedophile. The Elon I, Musk of mustaches. 
you're the one person I know who would have human resources talk to him about his facial hair. I was so bummed. Like, I look fucking good with this mustache. I got a good haircut. I'm shaving regularly. Yeah. And it was like, nope, shout out this guy. So you got you to deal with this fuzzy asshole for the rest of your lives, people. Is it me or is it always weird in ORs when there are scenes set during the day? Bright daylight? Yeah, it doesn't seem right. Well, this isn't truly an ORB. We kind of covered that. In fact, we're about to watch one of the funniest moments in the film where Nick tricks Nora into jumping into this cab and just... Grant's, Grant's tomb. tomb. <laughs> All the things to go to. <laughs> Grant's tomb. Whoa! Uh, and I love, I love that Nick and the fucking dumbest nails policemen both go, Au revoir! Like, they both kind of tip their hats to her because they know what's happening. I love that. They're both in on the joke. <laughs> also, this is not an intentional sight gag at all, but I always laugh at black and white cab. Like, an episode of, like, Spongebob or something. Like <laughs> Jamie, I've never connected those dots before, but I'm glad you did. I thought the joke you were going to mention was the fact that they're essentially living in the poor man's I Love Lucy. <laughs> well, we're on the fucking set of The Honeymooners right now. It's, oh God, only these these people just are going to murder each other with fucking steak knives. <laughs> I like how when she laughs, the subtitles go, humph! Look how bemused <laughs> Nick is during this entire thing. It's fun to God, watch I, just like what like what Nick and Noah are doing in any given scene when they're not the focus of it. They're really uh, acting still. They take this so seriously. I really, really, really appreciate it. Watch the movie two times in a row. Everyone at home, watch it once for the plot, once to see what Nick or Nora at any given time is doing when the camera isn't directly focusing on them. Because they're still acting and they're still trying to make you laugh. It's so good. It's honestly well, a masterclass. That's what Powell loved about Loy so much, was that she fucking got it. Like, 50% of this movie is just us reacting to things when we're not even speaking. It feels like those would have been the improvs. Like, it's not something you could script. Like, Nick fucks around. Nora goes, fuck you, fuck you. Really, some of the interactions are just amazing little weird interact. Just, just twicks between the two of them. It's so good. Ah. I'm mad because films today don't do the same thing. Also, to go back, that man had a frying pan or a glass or something thrown in his head in a long shot. I don't feel like we get that enough these days. I feel like nowadays a movie would cut up to a close-up of character throwing a thing and then a long-distance shot that maybe throws in like a stunt actor. I really like that we just had the master go, no, he was in mortal danger. <laughs> I really I appreciate, like, sometimes those long shots let you get away with Things that were very daring that insurance companies would be like, why do you want to do this? That sounds bad. Don't. Please, no. No one can hurt Tom Cruise. He really is the face of the Mission Impossible movies. If you kill... He jumped out of a plane. Oh, no. What do you mean he's in space? There's what? no air up he, there. He jumped into a dam and he's holding his breath as we're talking right now. I'm out of breath describing it and he's holding his breath deactivating something on camera? He really is the mummy. <laughs> Fuck you. Also, uh, Nick blowing Jesus. smoke rings is uh, the greatest special effects of early Hollywood. I wish I could do that. Oh, man. Old timers can just blow smoke rings like it wasn't a thing. 
Also, this little bit here where fucking Bigfoot Jorgensen is like, what? What? And realizes the man has run away while Nick's already calling the police department is just such a charming bit. That's really, if I were to describe it, Nick and Nora are constantly in the background of scenes doing bits while the other characters are doing their jobs. And that's what I love about this movie because if I were a character in a film, I would be doing bits regardless of if it fit the scene or not. Uh, that's something I think is very unique about this for the time. I don't really know of an example in film before this of something that's kind of a a well like a well-traveled comedy trope at this point, taking characters from a completely different kind of movie and just dropping them into in the middle of a story where they're not supposed to be the main characters. And not even that interested in being the main characters. One thing also to mention here, uh, as far as times go, if you're doing a first, second, third act breakdown of a film, the movie's an hour and a half long, so you'd probably have to go into 30-minute chunks, right? Which means we don't introduce Nick until a third of the way through the first act. He doesn't start his detective story until, honestly, 50 minutes into the film. We're, we're currently like 56 minutes, so he did one scene in the second act where he actually did detective work. And that's not a great barrier for breaking movies down. You shouldn't just go, oh, 30, 60, 90. Really, we're kind of jumping into the second act the moment he jumps into actually doing detective work, which is at like 50 minutes into an hour and a half movie. It's almost like the, the last act is when they go to the dinner scene in a few minutes. So like the second act is so truncated. It's it's incredible. It's so weird. For traditionalists writing scripts, you would never do it that way. And that's probably why most films don't feel like they're proportioned correctly. Anyway, also, I love this fucking joke here. where Nick is on the phone talking to his wife in an accent, and she believes it and is like, I have a story to get over my husband. He's like, I gotcha. The play between them. She even makes the same scrunched up face she makes at him <laughs> earlier in the film. On the phone. He, on the phone! It's Oh, it's so lovely. It's so charming. I and love he laughs it. He knows she's making the face. Exactly! <laughs> yes! They're such a good couple. He knows exactly what she's doing on the other end of the phone. And, like, he's not even mad about any of this. He's joking. And she's like, ah, you got one up on me. You're fine. Fuck you. It's so <laughs> loving. It's so loving. It's, it, this is a movie that can only be written by a couple actually in love. That's the only way I can describe it. It's, it's it's so good. Honestly, there has been almost no other film couple that has nailed a good relationship like this movie. It makes me think of all the girls that I fucked up on where obviously it wasn't as good as this. But it was closer than most movies where they're fucking arguing for 90% of the movie for no goddamn reason. They just won't talk to each other. Yeah, this is one of the, like, this is one of the reasons I get so frustrated when I hear screenwriters especially television writers say well we can't have these two characters to get together or we can have them get together but one of them has to die or they have to be written off the show because how they do have you to think about cheating on someone else Fuck they you, always, have to be, they always have to be having relationship drama they can't just be a happy couple yeah, yeah. it's like that that, like that famous quote from joss whedon where it's like well who wants to see a couple be happy? Like, there's there's no story there. It's like, I'm I just want to show everyone who says that fucking man. Shooting my hand to the roof of my room. Like, I, I would love to see a happy couple solve mysteries. I would love to see a happy couple in a horror movie. Don't kill either one. I, I would love to just see a happy couple deal with genre. Do it. 
Sure, it's great. We love to see people that love each other. That's cool. Do it. Don't More be often than not, especially on television. Yeah. Not doing that. That's probably one of the reasons the Bones lasted for like 900 seasons. Yeah. <laughs> Just, it bogs really everything it. Like, down. It bogs the storytelling down. Like, everything becomes this weird soap opera that's like, I don't understand how any of these people even like being around one another. Right? Why the fuck did you make a couple where it's like, well, we hate each other? What? Why? No. Make a couple that fucking loves each other. This is stupid. We want to see people that like each other. Uh, very, very, very much a tangent. I recently, I recently watched uh, Camp Coldbrook, like a, a direct-to-video Screen Factory release produced by Joe Dante about uh, a man who goes with his Ghost Surreal TV show crew to a haunted campground. However, the twist of the show is the lead character isn't an asshole and kind of believes in the supernatural and is just trying to find proof of it. Rather than like the standard, well, it's all fake and he's cynical, but he's faking it because he gets, you know, cooch on the side. <laughs> and honestly, that was enough for me to like the movie. Like, just why, why the fuck are so many people intent on making movies where the lead character is just an asshole and the arc is he becomes less of an asshole? Just maybe put... Decent people in the movies that the audience likes. You, it's you more can do it that way if they're into it. Right. Uh, like, in, in Camp Colebrook's case, the lead character and his wife love each other. And the husband's like, hey, man, my, my work job is on, on, oh, close to being fired. I don't want to tell my wife about this. She knows something's wrong, but we're going to hide this because I love her and I don't want her to worry. That makes a lot more sense than I'm an asshole. Jesus, like, I'm just so mad when movies now are like, your main character's a dipshit for no reason. Make loving characters who love other people. Why, why is this something we're afraid of? Yeah, at this point, sincerity is a special effect. Yeah. Is, sincerity isn't cool, which is so stupid. Like, the pendulum has to swing the other way eventually, guys. We've had so many years of cynicism. Go the other way. Embrace wholly something like, hey, Mr. Rogers is a pretty decent guy. What if we're more like him? Just just do it. I think people will react. I think people will embrace it. And even in comedies, I mean, a, a great recent example is uh, Booksmart, a movie where the, pre the premise basically hinges on the opposite of every other comedy premise where you start with very cliched comedy asshole characters and the twist is you slowly realize all of them are really nice and friendly and beautiful people. To interrupt you, Jamie, we're watching a scene right now where Nick just says, yeah, sure, I'll be safe. Like, as a joke. And he gets called up by Nora, like, I want you to say it like you mean it. They have a moment where they connect genuinely as characters before he goes off to do his thing. Because they want us to remind us, these characters truly love each other. And Nick is trying to protect her by acting cool and casual. It's it's really great. We get a moment where they show us 100%. These characters are sincere. They love each other so much. Before Nick goes off, he has to recognize that, and he has to contend with it. And the audience should, too, because we hopefully care for the characters. If not, why are we watching this? Fuck why you, Harley, is what we're saying. Our laptops. I mean, yeah, sure, you can have movies where an asshole becomes a good guy. Sure, that's a, that's a legitimate character arc. But I don't want to see every goddamn movie take the same goddamn arc. 
It's it's frustrating that it's exhausting. This isn't a it just makes it so thing. every movie starts from the same ground zero. And it's like, oh, right? great, we have to wait an hour for the movie to start, essentially. And the fact that something like the goddamn Adams Family, like a 1960s TV show, had to do this as the cultural counteract of a couple that love each other shows that it's been that way for decades. Why the fuck isn't this just a common thing? Why? Why the fuck is everyone like, oh, well, we want drama? A couple has to hate each other. No, don't. Why? It should be the other way around. Most couples should be into each other. Do it that way. That's <laughs> goddamn. It would actually help society if you showed that off. It's just very confusing. It's very frustrating. It's like, I don't understand why everyone takes screenwriting from the approach of, well, the couple should hate each other and that'll provide dramatic interest. No. <laughs> they'll just make me and the audience go, well, they should probably divorce. Also, the most Nora scene of the movie, this is the only scene that looks like it's actual film Nora. Which I is, know, again, we've a seen man. a lot of shadows. This is the we've most shadow, though. This is the most shadow. And it's a man calling for his dog. <laughs> probably, honestly, can you think of any other film Nora that has a pet dog? Not enough. I can't think of any. I just want to say Asta technically solves this entire case. That's true. Without <laughs> Asta, they would never dig up the corpse. You know, I, I always forget, um, after the Thin Man reveals that even Asta is happily married. What? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to embarrass myself. I've never actually seen any of the sequels to this film because they haven't been widely available. They're pretty delightful. After the Thin Man's not great, but they're all pretty pretty good after that. Uh, I should say, after The Thin Man, um, if I have my movie knowledge right, the second Thin Man, because again, there's six, uh, it is coming to the Warner Brothers archive in January, so two of the movies are going to be on Blu-ray very soon. Ooh. Make a box set. I know, I know watching this on HBO Max was fucking amazing, because that's like the, the 2K print on there. movie looks like it was filmed 20 years ago. It does for the most part. Uh, like this scene is great. The darkness really works well on on like my my TV that can handle 4K and all that. <laughs> the dinner scene looks like it was shot on video for some reason. I don't know what happened to that footage, but it doesn't look right. But this scene here, where it's just entrenched in shadow and film noir lights, looks perfect. I remember watching this it for is... the first time on DV on like cardboard oh, yeah. DVD and like mid-2000s, and... It... Mike, 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 did the version you have also come in a snapper case? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, so that was the only one. Folks at home, I don't know if you remember this. <laughs> I assume I'm always talking to 10-year-olds. Uh, there was a period <laughs> of time where DVDs and Blu-rays came in. What they call just DVDs, because uh, they were also a stupid thing. Snapper cases, which was basically a cardboard case that had a plastic hatch that would seal the case shut and you had to snap it open to remove the movie from the case uh my my copy of edward scissorhands was inside one of those uh the thin man was inside a snapper case batman was in a snapper case yes snap snap man i almost said batman was in a snapper case <laughs> up until it was picked up by the criterion collection a snapper case was the only way you could buy hedwig and the angry inch yeah isn't that fucking weird 
New it's releases just, hey, let's were make the in, cheapest in snap cases. Old movies were in snap cases. It was fucking insane. They were terrible. We, they were awful. We can't we can't know. spend plastic on a snapper. This is a snapper level movie. Let's just put the disc inside of garbage and a little bit of plastic is secured. One Ocean's thing, okay. Eleven was in a snapper case. My copy of Blade Runner was in a snapper case. What? That was it was the director's cut. What? You know how oh insane God. it is to think that technically our old DVD collections, because of those fucking cardboard cases, were fire hazards. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's 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 the one snapper story I would say <laughs> of my life. So when I was a kid, uh, I, I went to my junior prom with a bunch of friends. And I didn't go with a date. I just went with a couple of friends that wanted like someone to go with. So, you know, we all saw show up together and then we left and we went to my friend's house whose parents were away for fucking prom weekend. Ah, it's, it's like the setup for a raunchy comedy. So I just lied to my parents and went middle school handies. Yeah, pretty much. Like I just lied to my parents. I call them up and like, Hey, dance is over. I'm going to my buddy Eric's house for the night. And they went, yeah, I wouldn't give a shit. My, my parents do love me, but they're like, you, you're lame. That's fine. You're not going to do anything cool. They hung up. <laughs> so I went to my friend Vicky's house uh, along with several other friends. Uh, I was not there for Vicky or any of the other people. I had a crush on one of the other girls there. Why like all, like... Because it was her house, but I went... I, I, cause I had a crush on one of the other girls who went there. I had a crush on one of the other girls who went there. Shut up! Uh, so I just wanted to be scandalous, Okay. It was scandalous for me because at the time I was in the house alone. My parents didn't know where I was, didn't care. I had a whole night alone with a girl I was like crushing on. Uh, and, and we spent the whole night just watching the movies I threw in a duffel bag because I was the dipshit who used to throw like 10 movies in a duffel bag before I went to any party. <laughs> I didn't know what the party would be. I would, I would just grab like 10 movies and throw them in a duffel bag. Oh, Randy. And I, I just showed them like, what are we doing? And everyone, we didn't have any alcohol. And no one was old enough to get alcohol. No one was brave enough to get alcohol. So we just showed up to this party, and we're like, ah, let's watch. I don't know. Cody, what do you have? And I went, I got Batman, and I got Edward Scissorhands. And we watched both. They were both in Snappers. <laughs> we watched Edward Scissorhands first, and then we watched Batman Returns. This is Batman Returns in a Snapper case second. And that was the night. We just we were just watched movies from my DVD case of a fucking duffel bag for the evening. No one got laid. No one got lucky. No one got the uh, second, oh, first, no third, or fourth base. No one even tried. We were just we just sat on the couch watching these old movies and then talking about them. Oh, but One those of the best kids, moments of my life. Those kids spent years regaling their friends and family with stories of old Cody Alt and his duffel bag full of Tim Burton movies. But They're like dance. Yeah, but there there's a sad note to the story. During the middle of the night, someone stepped on my duffel bag. Mm. And my copy of Batman Returns was destroyed. No. Like the, the disc worked, but the snapper was broken. And it never snapped again. The case wouldn't shut, and the cardboard was all cracked, so it didn't sit right. And when I put it in my DVD collection, it just, it just it didn't fit. And it, it bothered me until... Years later, I finally bought the Blu-ray, and uh, I, I own a 4K now, so I just keep moving past my past, but it haunts me. It haunts me as a ghost, Jamie. I can't get rid of the fact that I was with my crush in a house, and she's going on to have a happier life than she would have had with me. Ah. Why did you invite Bane? 
<laughs> he just he just ruins it all. <laughs> I brought no shoes. <laughs> so, anyways, that's that's my experience with snapper cases for the whipper snappers. Hey, uh, and for all people who know that snappers are fucking bullshit, and we hated them. Um, Cody, you I, should I, I went sue to... Warner Brothers for that snapper case. It's worse than blue balls. What they gave me, there there was a sense of I'm garbage, and it just lasted till way past now. Into the future, goes I want to sue them for the future. No, it doesn't. No. Oh. Anyway, sorry. We just saw the scene where they basically give us all the goddamn clues in the movie. So the fat this man. This is where the movie was, remind, un- was like, "Shit, we got to wrap this up." Yeah, but it does it an hour eleven minutes in. There's like still twenty minutes left in the movie. I uh, love how so- there's a Dashiell Hammett adaptation where the mystery aspect of it is so like third level. I guess we'll get around to actually doing that at some point. Hold on. I want to point out what a great effect this is. They just like reverse shot a net being sucked into a hole to cover the news covering the nation. <laughs> it's, like it's so simple, but it's like, what a great shot. What an amazing shot. Sorry, Mike, go on. Oh, I finished my really, like, every... Oh, well, that time <laughs> that. pretty good, I guess. We need, we Sorry, need to go back to... We need to go back to news being presented to the audience through shots of uh, newsboys shouting extra, extra, while the silhouette of a sinister man looms over all of it. Yes. I think he looks more <laughs> so like a go, penguin. To go back like three minutes, back when they were giving us the hint of what the story should be, we see the thin man laid out, and we, we see Nick seeing the shrapnel on the leg and the mortician is like oh well he probably suffered in world war ii and that's why he limped and used a cane Which... i was like the most 30s forensic science thing in the world right like he's absolutely right but it's one of the... oh god oh sorry we're seeing one of the best nick and nora interactions <laughs> where nick's an asshole nora sweeps him down he falls on her and they have to like jokingly hash it out oh i love it yeah, this is. I assume that's what couples do. If not, you you should break up with your girlfriend or wife or husband or louse. Uh, but anyways, uh, it, it, it's one of those things where in that scene of the X-ray, they're giving away so many clues after you're like, oh god, we have to move forward quick so people don't realize what we're saying. Because in the start of the movie, we saw Wyatt with a cane, aching about his ankle, uh, not his ankle, his like shin bone, his everything. So the movie, and I love this, gives us all the clues. If we're paying attention, we can put everything together. There are some mysteries that don't let you do this. There are some mysteries that reveal everything in the last act, only when the detective says it. And you got to admit, those are frustrating, right? Like, it feels like the movie's cheating. It feels like you've been had. This film's like, oh, shit. Second time you watch it, you're like, duh, why didn't, why didn't I notice that? The filmmakers are being very obvious about everything that's happening here. They want me to understand the mystery. It's been obfuscated by the lawyer coming in and redirecting the story because he's the murderer, which he does at, at two or three points in the film. Like, he just walks in and says, hey, I saw Wynant. He's down on Fifth Street. Go get him. Like, he just he just shows up and redirects the story, which is obviously pointing towards him. But... So I, I like the way this is structured. There is a serious mystery, and we forget a lot about the early stuff 
as all audiences do. Like, there's no one who ever remembers the start of a Scooby-Doo. But this movie has so much effort laid into redirecting us as we go through. And Nick gets involved in the mystery so late, we don't really think about those early clues so much because they're not presented as clues. They're just details of the story. Weird details, but details nonetheless. Only to turn out to be like, oh, yeah, of course, the butler did. He was the first guy we saw. Also an interesting touch here. We're, we're about to see a classic, a staple in detective stories where all of the potential murder suspects get invited to a dinner party where the hero will reveal who did it and why. Normally presenting several false alternatives first to draw out reactions before finally going like, ah, no, no, it's fucking round. It's that guy. This is an interesting thing to me. Because in detective stories, we always get this happening. And it's happened so much where it's not even cliche. It's just woven into the fabric of the genre. You can't criticize a detective story for having a scene like this where he singles everyone out and then slowly whittles down the field. You can only criticize how effectively the movie handles that scene. Also, can I just say how much I appreciate that this early on in film history, we got a scene of two characters setting up the big <laughs> I really love that. That's, that's true, too. Like, you actually get to see the prep scene of them being like, hold on, hold on. Let's make sure we all do the due diligence for getting the setup exactly the way we need for so-and-so to have an emotional reaction that will cause uh, you know, the chemical reaction. That like, how the leaves. fuck did we get a deconstruction of this scene before this is a scene? It's happened yeah. three times in this movie, Mike. It's deconstructed. Everything that happened later. They were just so far goddamn ahead of the curve. They just knew the genre. Dashiell Hammett the... fucking knew his shit. I think that's one of the reasons that this movie is so timeless. And while this movie still finds new fans to this day, it feels like it's taking the piss out of a genre that doesn't exist yet. <laughs> it's astounding. <laughs> it honestly Always is. Like 1945 or something. Not... Not be not before the Maltese Falcon. That's really the thing. Like, don't think you're big shit. Honestly, there's someone probably years before you who knew the deal and they fucking knew how to deconstruct it. And when it comes to your time to do the same, you're probably doing what someone before already recognized but didn't have the means to express. And what's extra funny, I think, about this is unlike what would come after it with these kind of scenes, which are just useless pageantry usually on the detective's part this is so like in your face no we're literally doing this to amuse ourselves like we don't need to do this this way <laughs> we're doing it because this will amuse us like that's what you would get out of satire in like 1994 of one of these things that's I, a scene I, I love the scene too I love this scene too where the cop has to be like cocktail and people are like I don't want one take a Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so they, have the, they balance the comedy and the mystery and the drama all together in one scene so well. So I forgot so, what the easier parts of the movie were. I am so disturbed by the fact that the Charleses have goons they can send out to just grab people off the street, apparently. Those were police officers, Jimmy. They got <laughs> they the police. Pocket. They're on the take. It's not. <laughs> They're not, yeah, exactly. No, they're not goons. Those are, those are registered men of the law. 
who will never ever abuse their powers for seemingly no reason whatsoever. Folks at home, the year is 2020. I want you to know what I'm saying is bullshit, and the law will constantly abuse their powers to do whatever they feel like, if only to make themselves feel like they weren't high school dropouts. Listen, contrary to what I'm Rodan may say, face. defund the police. Defund the police. Box office pulp believes, fuck the police. Fuck and them. Rodan. I can do their jobs. And Rodan. <laughs> fuck Rodan. He ain't gonna defeat Godzilla. Make him do his job. I really hope Rodan loses in the Georgia runoff. Fuck <laughs> Rodan in his Georgia runoff. He ain't got it. In all seriousness, I did, like, my girlfriend and I did have I a moment I everything I just said, Jamie. <laughs> my girlfriend and I did have this uh, moment together what, uh, earlier in the film where uh, Nick is telling the uh, one of the suspects to go to the police, and he's like, well, why, so they can beat the shit out of me with the, with blackjacks? And we, like, we looked at each other like, oh, yeah, people have known about police brutality for really Ever. long time. <laughs> Since the 1930s, at least. But even then, yeah. no, that's a solid point. People then knew, like, hey, the police aren't fair. But the movie's done a good job of showing that. Again, we've discussed this happened in the fucking Prohibition era. Nick has drank booze directly in front of police. He's offered booze to police. He goes with the police to a criminal's house who offers both the police officer and Nick, a private detective, a shot. Like, there's two worlds, socialites and lower life. Yeah, ain't got the same justice. As it light is. and breezy as this movie is, it really wants to illustrate the fact that it ain't the same. We're different. We got money. Uh, this is like a fucking a discussion for a different episode, but it is fascinating watching movies from this era and seeing the police mostly portrayed as either morons or malevolent. Right up until about the time Hollywood Babylon comes out, and then Hollywood really wants to smooth things out with the police. No, I think that's true. Like, Hollywood eventually realized they could start paying... I'm sorry. Uh, uh, police could start paying Hollywood money. And they had to go, okay, yeah, sure, we're buds. And it became a matter of, hey, police are respected. We believe in police. There's there's a switch somewhere in the 70s where all of a sudden police became less than uh, paid goons and more of, these are national heroes who protect our streets. There's a jump. And it's very awkward. It's very weird. Mostly due to Jack Webb. Yeah, you still you still watch the older stuff and you just see uh, like the Keystone Cops and the fucking silent comedies who are just a bunch of uniformed goons who just run after our hero and try and club him a bunch. Like they don't have individual thought, they're just a mass. And that was how people thought of police until like 1930. <laughs> like it's 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 very strange because we just assume it's always been the same. No. Thought on all sorts of different social structures have uh, changed every couple of decades, and we forget that. What we live with right now, maybe it's not right, and we could change it very soon. And what we're used to might be very wrong, and people are going to laugh the hell out of us in a matter of a lifetime. It's going to be embarrassing. Just just prepare yourself now. I like see you, Blade Runner 2049. I like how uh, Cody gets more socially conscious with every drink. I have a lot of champagne to get through, Jamie. There, there's like, oh, God, eight minutes for me to drink a third of a bottle. <laughs> Damn it, Cody, stop being the living embodiment of the two drinks later meme. 
Oh no, chug, it's me. Chug, 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 chug. No, I can't. I can't. I can't just chug because there's two bottles involved. There's the champagne and there's the mixed drink that I gotta shake. Actually, I could probably pour those together. You're right. Hold on. Hey, goddamn uh, fucking me over. Oh again. God, here it goes. <laughs> this is gonna end in. Comedy. Oh no! Oh no! No! What did you do? I poured the foam too high. It's fine now. Oh, there is a, damn there's it. a reaction. The foam. God, God no, fucking damn it. No, I on it. There's a single bead that went down the side of this glass and I caught it. I caught it. It's fine. It's fine. There's, uh, I can pour more. I can pour more champagne into the shaker right now. I'm out. Baby, you know what this means. That, that, sorry. You gotta, you gotta respond to me so, so I can do my bit. What, what does it mean? It means drink time, baby. Thank you. Ooh. Ooh. Wow. Anyway, um, Nick's uh, revealing the murder. Yeah, it's a classic <laughs> scene. It really is. It's a scene that we've seen a thousand other times, like fucking the murder on the Orient Express. Does this exact same thing? The new version of it, the fucking Brand- Kent Brown yeah, version. Yeah, but like, just, I mean, but, but Perot wasn't doing it to get laid. That's true. <laughs> Perot knows what happens. Nick is generally like, I'm not quite sure. I'm just going to keep accusing people until I'm someone to wing tells this. me. He really does seem that way, but not necessarily because he puts Kavanaugh next to him. And Kavanaugh's the one with the gun, right? So he has to... Yeah, I mean, it, it would follow he has some pretty good idea. The movie never gives us a clue that Nick actually knows what the fuck he's doing, but he always is kind of flying by the seat of his pants, and he's good at that. I would love if Powell looked... Fuck you, direct- Gilbert! Fuck you! You should go to jail for being a dipshit. Sorry. <laughs> would, Gilbert is on the screen. I hate him. Gilbert seems like <laughs> someone would- who would help out Albert Fish. Do you get that vibe? <laughs> Albert Fish. <laughs> What's wrong with Albert Fish? What, what the fuck do you have? <laughs> Mike, what big fish problems do you have? You're thinking of Albert Finney, not Albert Fish. Oh, no. What's Albert Fish? Uh, that's the serial killer who would uh, shove uh, roses up his dickhole. Oh, he ate a boy, child. I did bad. He, he got butt naked and ate a child. Wow! Oh no! A moan orgasmically for his children to see. Oh, I did real bad. Oh fuck! Oh that my guy. god! I'm isolating everything that just happened. <laughs> Cody dropping like, oh, no. what's wrong with Albert Fish? I thought Fish was Finny. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> this isn't the ending of Big Fish at all. <laughs> no, I thought I'm like, what's wrong with Big Fish? What's wrong with Big Fish? Oh, no! I like how I made the joke that Cody was going to get so drunk he didn't implicate himself in a murder. <laughs> Mere minute. <laughs> oh, I'm no. happy. Happy. Oh, no. Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy oh, New no. Year. This is our Christmas New Year's episode. You're welcome. Because <laughs> this is the only in I'll ever have to tell the story on the show. Uh, the first night I met my girlfriend, I impressed them by throwing myself down on the floor and doing an impression of uh, Albert Fish rolled up in a carpet. I'm a big hit at parties. <laughs> Jamie, I've done like three big personal stories. This episode alone, why aren't you doing this more often? The folks demand it. The, I, I call the fans the folks. 
You're okay with that, aren't you, the folks? God damn it, Cody. My life is my own. No, it isn't. Jamie, did you then take out a board that was underneath the sink to um, show them all of the bits of gore attached to the nails? Oh, that's that's second date right there. You you gotta space that stuff out. Anyways, oh man, I'm so upset I didn't mention this. So the history of the coupe glass. Man, folks, ah! What? God damn it! There's only like three minutes left. I'm gonna get into it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Sorry. Go, go, so, go, go, go. The coupe glass. Have you ever seen one? It's a thin, wide glass that people normally pour uh, cocktails into. But it's inserted that way. It used to be the coupe glass was synonymous with champagne. People wore champagne into the glass. There was even a joke that used to be modeled upon a king of England's wife's tit because it was it was bulgy. Not true. Uh, not true at all. But fun to say. Anyways, the idea was you pour the champagne and the cocktail into the wide bowl. Because, weird enough, in the past, too many bubbles were considered a shitty sign of wine. Or, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, champagne. So you wanted a flute in recent times because you wanted to show off the bubbles. In the old days, you wanted a wide glass. So the bubbles would just go away very quickly. This changed uh, about the 60s. From 1930-1960, you wanted a wide glass, so the bubbles would kind of expire quickly, and you could pour the rest of the drink in, and people would just have the champagne, f- not quite flute, the coupe. The coupe uh, affectionately was called the Nick and Nora after this film, because so many goddamn people saw this movie and saw them drinking out of champagne flutes. Uh, that's wrong. Not champagne flutes, but champagne coupes. Flutes and Anyways, in modern days, everyone drinks champagne, drinks out of a flute because they want bubbles the whole way up and down. Uh, the style of champagne, the sweetness of it has actually changed over the years. So everyone wants flutes and they want the bubbles to maintain. They don't want a flat champagne. But back in the 1920s, baby, you wanted a wide brim coupe glass. Things ain't the same. Things Ain't the same. Anyways, we're about to see our heroes bid farewell. They're on a train. Nick is on this train drunk. And he's trying to explain time differences to his wife. And the fun part about this is, if you read this through a modern life, you might just assume Nick is thinking his wife is a dipshit. If you're also thinking about it, though, you realize Nora knows the time difference. And she's trying to get her husband out of there because he's been here too goddamn long. And the newlyweds just want to fuck. So he's trying to convince her to leave. And Nick just, flights of angels, he just keeps adding goddamn shit to his farewell. He just wants to go. Get the couple out of there. That's it. It's good night, good night. Uh, The door is closed. They can fuck. I I adore that the ending of this movie is the the young couple fuck, and then the old couple fuck, and then the dog closes its eyes so it doesn't have to watch them all fucking. I love that. And it's a 1930s movie, so they have to be like, no one's fucking. Wink, wink. But that's really it. Like, even to the last, though, Nick is arguing like, well, baby, we left New York at 11 o'clock, so the time difference would be... Nora knows the time difference. She's just like, I just wanted you out of there. Just stop arguing. Let them fuck. And then Nick leaves like, I'll put the dog up there so we can fuck. She's like, yeah, it's all right, too. It's, it's just really weird. It's such a weird you, thing where, like, the woman has agency and she's very smart, and the man is so fucking just drunk. He has to be like, I have to argue! 
And oh, it makes sense. Yeah, we, we get that, Cody. Trust us. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm so drunk I have to argue. I have to yell. Oh, and God, then a penis entered a vagina. <laughs> so that like is a one train. Of my... Like a train. That's one of my favorite uh, old Hollywood tropes. Uh, the husband who's too stupid to know he's horny and needs his wife. <laughs> I think happening. we've all been there. <laughs> Sorry, I've never, I've never considered myself too stupid to be horny, but that's an apt description of my life. I definitely have every fucking day. I'm going the other way, like too drunk to be horny, but never too stupid. But it, no, definitely, I've been there. Just uh, your I was too just stupid to know. That, that needs to no, be a bop shirt, right? Like, we need to release a series of shirts, and one of them needs to say, too stupid to be horny. No, just that's... just too confused at porn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. What well, is Well, Jamie, you're, you're correct. What else did you have to say on the matter of men being too stupid to be horny? Just a question mark <laughs> trying to enter a vagina. <laughs> My God damn it! I got a drink to finish. <laughs> yeah, save your Riddler bullshit for after the show. Enigma, motherfucker. <laughs> oh, there's so much drink to finish, Jamie. Please, please have a long outro. Well, I just finished my smearing off ice screwdriver. I'm uh, very pleasantly buzzed. Uh, Jamie, still I have ten shots of gin to finish. I got ten. You'll get it's there. You'll get there. Let I got to work tomorrow in like eight hours. I would like to remind the folks at home that Cody's job involves your money. It's true. I do insurance for automobiles, so drive safely. Don't fucking crash into your neighbor. I gotta charge you, and I don't want to do it. Fuck you. Spend your money on different shit, not insurance. Cody's gonna make sure you go to jail. It's unfortunate. I don't want to, but don't go to jail. I'm just turning into a were-nots. I don't know if there's a moon outside, but I'm turning into a were-nots, and you're... you're, you're, you're... Oh, jeez! Oh, no, you're going to, to the prison for violating fishing rules. Oh, no, by the old creek. Oh, God, Mike, the bow tie is emerging from his flesh. Shoot him. Oh, God, the I shittiest am Mr. Chicken. in the West. I am Mr. Chicken. Oh, God, is that why Barney had as you know, he had the fucking the gun with the one bullet in it? It was silver, just yes. in case. God, that fish has big okay. lips. The face in the crowd. Anyway. Right. Yeah, what do you guys got to promote? I'm done nuts! Kill me! I'm well, well, raves, off, but first, I should remain there! Drunk Cody, shut up for a second. If you like this that horrible, horrible yeah, podcast right. and this commentary, no, it's, be it's sure to it. find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, all the other fine po- places you can listen to podcasts. Uh, we're even on Amazon Music these days. And of course, you can also what? find us at Box Office Pulp on Twitter, uh, Box Office Pulp Podcast on Facebook. BoxOfficePulp.com is the website. You can find me at Lucky Deck Napier on Twitter. And I write at for HorrorMoviesHub.com where, you know, I can ramble about horror movies without Cody drunkenly screaming the entire time. It's pretty much the same. I'll, I'll, I'll scream over your, 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 your tweets. I'll, I'll keep screaming. Also, while I have the mic, uh, I do want to uh, recommend to everybody a little Etsy store called Monster Morales. Uh, I'll be linking to it in the show notes. Uh, It's a really great store, really nice people. If you're looking for some spooky stuff for your pets or even yourself, they're going through a bit of a 
bit of a tough time lately, so I'd uh, you know like if you pick some stuff up. The uh, link in the show notes will even give you a little bit off, so enjoy that. Yes, they do good work. I picked up their Succubus sticker for my laptop just last week. Nice. And uh, you can check me out if you have some perverse desire to know what I'm like outside of the show on Twitter at uh, MondoFunky. Hi, I'm Cody. I ostensibly host this show. It's not true, but I'll give myself that credit. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at BobWatch1. Spelled like the number, not the letter. Don't, don't do O-N-E. Don't, that's bad. I got nothing else. There's nothing going on in my life otherwise. I'm a very boring person. Don't, don't, don't watch me. Bye. Well, this has been Flowers for Algernon. And then Carol of the Bells plays loudly. So much gin. I'm one of like the eight people who honestly saw and ignores infinite playlists in theaters. Um, and I, I took a girl, I think, I don't know if this is hard to remember because when did the movie come out? I got to look this up. I honestly like, as we're talking, yeah, that's why to... hard to remember right now. Nick, uh, uh, Nick with a K, with a K on H. And Nora, uh, uh, sorry, very drunk. Infinite Playlist came out in 2008. 2008, where was Cody in his life? At an 18-year-old, oh, that, was a, that was a bad point. He's about graduating from high school. Had several girls who didn't like him, uh, but he liked them. Yeah, no, I was in a relationship. Didn't work out, uh, but I was in a relationship that time. He thought it would go forever. Um, boy, oof, oof, oof. If you're gonna watch that movie, do it single. That, that that's all I can say. It, it's gonna inspire you to find someone who maybe likes you. But if you do it uh, out of a relationship, you're gonna be like, oh boy, that's really saccharine. It's it's too sugary. No one, no one does that kind of thing. No one. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. We'll all die alone, whether we love someone or not. Even if you're happily married, you're gonna die alone. It's just the thing that life gives to us. I don't know why we're so intent on marrying another. I don't know why we're so intent on making combinations. <sighs> one by one, the Reaper claims us all. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. <laughs>